to the Deep Sea Podcast, Pressurized, a short, punchy version of our main feed that gets right to the scientific point. If you like what you hear and you'd like to hear the full episode, you can find it in the same feed. And now, to get right to the point. So, a slightly different episode this time. We are both in the throes of prepping to go to sea. Very, very busy. Lots of buying of shackles. It's always lots of buying of shackles. You always need more shackles than you think you do. So we thought for this one, we would do a little Q&A from, uh, from listeners about mainly the sort of offshore life going on these expeditions and what it's like. So we got some questions from uh, listeners and I thought we could just rapid fire these. And if any interesting bigger stories come up, we'll just, All right. we'll go with it. Go with it. Question number one. Well, this is a potentially dangerous one. We're straight, we're going in hot. Do you ever start getting annoyed with everyone when it's drawing to the end of the trip or do you always keep spirits high and tensions low? I don't think I've ever been annoyed with everyone, but I certainly get annoyed with some people. So I think it depends who it is and the circumstance. But yes, there are times on the longer trips where you do want to strangle people by the end of it but you just have to bury that <laughs> and ability to get on with people at sea can be a factor in you being included yeah. in the trip like a, a big element of it is how well do you get along with others because there's some people who are absolute geniuses and brilliant at their work but they just they don't get on well with others and you yeah. you can't have that poisoning the vibe on the ship there's an element of cabin fever there too i think i think anything over a month you can see not not necessarily with me and anyone else but you can see it amongst everyone that there's after about a month, people start to get on each other's nerves a little bit. And what's cool is when you get off the ship and go to the pub or something like that, it all goes away. It goes away instantly. You can be like really yeah. kind of like, I just can't stand this guy anymore. But then as soon as you're off the ship and it's like, last night, let's go for a beer. And it just evaporates. It's kind of weird. It's just it's total cabin fever. Mm -hmm. I get that. Do you ever have a moment where you're just, wow, this is my job. I get to do this. And is it tied to a certain moment? Is there, is there one that jumps out for you? Uh, yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. There are sometimes. I can't say one specifically, but you know, when we, we find something we wasn't expecting or like you're sitting in a submarine looking at something every now and again, it does pop into your back of your mind that this is not normal, right? <laughs> it's like, you know. <laughs> I'm looking at something that human beings have never seen before and, you know, something that a, a structure that was formed millions of years ago and it's been sitting underwater that entire time. And then suddenly one day on, on a, a Sunday morning, we've sort of showed up and went, ooh, look at that. So there are little moments where you think that's that is pretty cool. What about you? Uh, no, definitely. There's been a there's been a few, but I try and keep stock of that. I try not to let it get too normal because we are really lucky to do what we do and see the things we do. Um, it was a story I told recently on that other show was the ethereal. I just think that was such a, that was such a cool story because it was just the three of us up at 3am, absolutely exhausted from the day. And then just to, <laughs> just to get some, someone wheel back their chair and just go, check out this fish. Yeah. <laughs> that was a really good one. Oh, and then the flip side, have you ever had days or specific trips that have made you close to never going out again? I think we've all had those. Uh, probably not so much recently. I think there was a period of time around 2005, 2006 or something like that, that I was doing a lot of trips on lots of different vessels doing lots of different things, you know. And I remember once going from a, a trawler in the North Sea, coming back to the house for like 24 hours, jumping on a plane, going to Malta, joining a German ship, spending a month going around the Mediterranean, doing really crazy hours, and then flying home, waiting two days, and then flying to South Africa, and then doing this crazy trip down to the Southern Ocean that lasted like six or seven weeks. And I think that was that was before I had family and stuff like that. But I think there were times where it probably pushing it a bit too hard, and you're just like, you know, what am I doing? And that's an amazing opportunity, but that that burns you out. Yeah, even when you're sort of younger and stuff 
like that. There comes a point where like, I just want to just slow down a bit. It's not so much the, the cruise itself. I think it's just the, the traveling and the sort of getting your mind from a bunch of Germans doing CDT profiles, and then you're a bunch of <laughs> British doing loads of trolls, and then you've run, you know, you're jumping to different nationalities, different gear, different science objectives, you know, loads of different time zones, and you're just exhausted. And lots to worry about for each one. Will the gear be there? Yeah. And just a long, long day. It's like a 16-hour day isn't unusual. And yeah. there's only so many weeks you can keep that up for yeah. before you just buckle. I think I was similar back in the the days working in uh, in survey where the, it was a lot of time offshore. And I can remember one where we'd all absolutely busted a gut because we were trying, there was a storm rolling in. If we got the survey done that night, we could all be home for Christmas. If the storm rolled in, we couldn't work. We'd have to stay out on site and no one would get Christmas. And so we absolutely busted a gut. Everyone sort of pulled above and beyond to try and get done. And I came into port late at night on the 23rd and we'd done it. We'd made it. And as I'm walking down the gangway, my boss is stood at the end of it. And before I'd even got within earshot of him, I was like, I'm, I'm not going home for Christmas. Like something's fallen through and I'm going to be sent immediately onto another boat. And I just knew it walking down before he even had to say anything. And I've seen a meme going around at the moment of, uh, say, people in the military or the Navy being served a really nice meal and how everyone is like, oh no, because that's the meal you get before you're deployed or before you get bad news or you're going to be out there for longer. And that's how it felt just walking down the gangway. And I was just like, oh no, I'm not going home. Are the rooms slash bunks assigned or is it first in best dressed? Uh, they are very much assigned usually. It's assigned. You don't normally get a, get a choice in that. And it's assigned based on number of people versus if they're shared. If they're shared, then it's male-female ratios. There's other things to consider. Like it's quite nice sometimes if you're doing a back-to-back with someone. So someone's doing a 12-hour shift. And if you're bunking up in the same cabin as someone who's doing the same job as you, it means the agreement is for 12 hours a day the cabin's yours and for the other 12 hours a day the cabin's someone else's. They're better ones. And so it's the it's normally the, the ship that decides how to allocate it, stuff like that. So you don't really get a say. You can, if you've been on the same ship a lot, you can probably wrangle a slightly better deal. <laughs> and you can always bribe people as well. Bribing is an option. <laughs> yeah, never forget bribing. Always. On, on a ship, yep. Your cabin allocation is usually tied to your role during an emergency. And so that might be based on your level of training. So they're not going to have you on the fire team if you haven't done your firefighting and things like that. So sometimes that can influence which cabin you're put into. Oh, the scariest moments at sea. Oh, I've had a few. Uh, mm. I think probably, I don't know, it's a sort of toss up between being in an absolute horrendous storm in Antarctica and thinking that Heather was going to get cut in two. And I couldn't, I couldn't do anything about it because they chained me to the A-frame. That was pretty mental. That was on Christmas Day, 2015. That was pretty scary. There was another one where my old colleague Toyo and I went out on a Japanese vessel called Hakomaru. We went straight into a typhoon, straight off the bat. And that was just like, I mean, that's a big ship. It's a good, like, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 metres, something like that. And it was getting absolutely pummeled. And they're just like, off we go. And I'm just like... This. Yeah, it's not normally big weather. I think big weather is where it becomes scary because you realise yeah. how vulnerable you are. Even on a big ship, the ocean is bigger than you. It's definitely, definitely bigger than you. <laughs> so it's probably a weather-related stuff, but yeah. Yeah, I can remember a few where it was just, it was leaning too far and it was pausing mm. at the extremes of the lean. So it was like going right over and then rather than rolling back again, it would just hang there for a moment. And I, I can remember lying in my bunk, holding on, just sort of trying to measure the angle in my head and thinking like, this is it. Mm. This is the one that's going to flip us. Oh yeah. Scary. 
Oh, any hacks for being at sea? Like the room closest to the mess means that you get a midnight snack. Well, we don't normally get to choose, but I know that I've had been on ships where there's bad cabins that have, like on the old Discovery, there used to be one near the bar. Oh, yeah. And we used to call it the Thunderbog cabin because there was a communal toilet next to it. And it was on a ship, you have vacuum flushing. And this particular toilet was very loud and very and vibrated a lot. And so if you got that cabin, you'd be trying to get to sleep and there'd be other guys in the bar and they'd all be taking their turns to go to the toilet every 10 minutes. And Thunderbog would go off right behind your head, just through the wall. So, yeah. That's a good one. Uh, we had a few called the anti-gravity cabin, oh, yeah. which is the ones right in the bow. So I can I can remember one where, again, one of, one of these storms, I was being like pushed right down into the mattress so I could hear the springs groaning and then would like float a little bit out of my mattress as the bow came down again. So it's hard to sleep in that situation. Plus we've got bow thrusters, so it was deafening. It was horribly loud. So that was a bad cabin. Yeah, aim for low and in the middle of the ship if you don't like movement because yep. that tends to be the pivot point. That's a pro tip. Nothing else on cabins, really. Yeah. You get what you're given. Deal with it. <laughs> oh this is a weird one trickiest most annoying critter to work with look for or study uh, for me it's definitely the big decapods the big pinnades the big red shrimp we see at hadle depths uh. they're just so skittish that we've tried to catch them in a whole manner of different ways but they're just everything about their morphology is to not get caught <laughs> and so anything touches those antennae and they're just poof. We've got hours and hours and hours of footage of these things all over the place. And after 600 deployments, I think we've caught one of each species. And they were they were, they were about 2,000 miles apart, so utterly useless in terms of making any assumptions. So Data points. <laughs> the big red shrimp are the most beautiful, graceful things in the abyssal plains, but God, they're difficult to catch. Um, it came up today, actually, in a conversation. A weird one, but glass sponges. Oh yeah, nasty. Because the spicules are like fiberglass, and it just, they get into your skin. You can wear, no matter how many layers of gloves you wear somehow they still get into your skin and over a few weeks it's like eczema oh they're just really you're just covered in a rash it's really not nice at all and as we've discussed they smell it's almost as if humans haven't really evolved to handle glass sponges from the deep sea it's like they, they didn't really evolve together at any point it's, it seems like that's that it's like we don't like microscopic glass splinters and they go right into our hands yeah it's like trying to pick up ten thousand hypodermic needles and going wow this is really awkward yes <laughs> so, yeah yeah, one of those yellow needle bins they have in hospitals. It's just like yeah. rooting around in one of those. Yeah. With a toffee at the bottom. <laughs> what was it like the first time you went on a ship or down in a submarine? I think the sub's an interesting one. Yeah, the first time I went on a ship was RRS Discovery. I just really enjoyed it. I just genuinely just really enjoyed the whole thing. It was just a really great experience. I loved it. I thought, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. First time in a submarine, are we talking first successful dive or the first aborted dive? Oh, that's true. There was a near miss first, wasn't there? Yeah, first time in a submarine didn't go that well. Uh, first successful dive was just brilliant. It was just such a good day out and coming back. And I think I told this story on the very first podcast, but it was just it was just one of those days. It was just great. It really was. It was just, it went like clockwork, kind of, you know, and there was a big party at the end and the weather was like an absolute glass off and there was a big sun set at the end and they made me a t-shirt and it was all it was just really cool yeah loved it oh this is a good one and what's the biggest animal you've seen both on the ship and in the subs on the ship was a blue whale we saw last year coming back that's the biggest one yeah that's the biggest one alan you can't top that i know i bagged it I, i've got nowhere to go with that it's the challenge of deep of big animals right? <laughs> that's what they say that's what it says in the book we were on a privately owned 
yacht and we had just come back from doing the diamantina fractures on coming into perth and we were told to watch out for pygmy blue whales and all this kind of stuff because it's a sanctuary a protected area and so on and we're up there doing our due diligence to make sure we didn't ram any whales and this was not a pygmy blue whale (laughs) (laughs) quite the opposite my friend quite the opposite this was absolutely enormous i've seen them before but always at a distance right you don't really get a sense of scale but this one was pretty close and it was just like wow that was just absolutely enormous like it's so big it doesn't make sense you know what i mean it's just like that's that didn't grow like someone's made that (laughs) that's a prop that's not real yeah yeah that was was really quite something special uh in the sub probably just a big cuskill you don't you don't have real big stuff down deep there's an optimum size everything sort of gets to that Mm. one and a half meters yeah Actually, that reminds me of a couple of stories since we're doing a stories one. I was offshore for a, with an engineer who it was his first time he'd like transferred. It was like his first time going offshore or like an early, early time going offshore. And as we're heading out of port, some common dolphins are bow riding Mm -hmm. and he'd had quite a tough background and he didn't quite know how to process that. And the only way he could sort of sum it up was to, he just genuinely asked me, are those real? It just couldn't, (laughs) couldn't believe Like, I I don't know what the alternative was. I don't know how I would have faked that, but it just was so overwhelmed by the moment he couldn't believe it was real you could have just told them they weren't and they were robotic and it's part of the the sample design yeah or it's like when you you get a plastic owl to scare off pigeons so we just have plastic dolphins on our bow yeah to scare off the flying fish yeah so don't chip (laughs) the pin talking about things they they do and don't like the common dolphins really like this one piece of equipment we used to use called a boomer which basically was yellow and dolphin shaped and these are the one these are the dolphins with the flash of yellow down the side the hourglass shape and apparently that was very very sexy to them so they'd all be flirting with this piece of toad gear so that was fun but yeah for the biggest animal nowhere near yours but one of the sort of magical ones were um pilot whales which are mm. really just big dolphins but they're quite curious and we were holding station to uh lower a ctd i think it was and they do this thing called spy hopping and a few a few different animals do this where they sort of bob straight up out of the water to get a look at you basically or to to orientate themselves because they can have a little 360 twirl and, and come around and they just made eye contact with this this pod and they were they were really quite big or at least in my memory they're really quite big and they're just standing out the water like the monolith from uh, 2001. Mm. Just these huge black animals rising out of the sea and making eye contact with us and a sort of like, what the hell are you doing here? This is our area. <laughs> but they seem to sort of curious, but yeah, they hung around for a while. That was a cool one. What's it like getting to connect with all these specialized scientists and interviewing them? I'd say that's probably why we started the show because we talked to a lot of people on these trips and we're just like, you, you are really cool and nobody even knows what it is you study or the general public don't and they have a right to be as interested as we are <laughs> yeah no, i agree i think there's a lot of the way in which deep sea science is presented we, we, we rant about this all the time the way it's presented in the media and stuff like that there's a certain narrative which is becoming really boring but when you actually work with a lot of these people you're like it should be boring there's no way this should be or, or not necessarily boring but just really predictable and there's way more interesting stuff going on and there's all these you know people who don't necessarily get a voice to do it and I think that's what the reason why we really started it is to is to get all these interesting people that come our way and just chat about it rather than making some sort of big bold statement about what ultimately always becomes knowing more about the moon and ocean conservation you know are there any specific news feeds to keep up on to hear more news about the deep sea this this is the tricky thing because this is why we started this because there aren't many yeah. i think the dosi newsletter is really good yeah we've mentioned that a few times so that's that's a great angle for deep sea news there is a few of the 
the dive streaming, live streaming streams. There is a Discord called Divestream Oceanographic, I think it is. We've mentioned these previously and we'll, we'll try and put the links in the show. They're all really good for experiencing sort of deep sea science as it's happening. Yeah, it's difficult because we, we started this because we worried that people who had a genuine interest couldn't find the good and factual stuff in amongst all the aliens and monsters and, and nonsense. Hmm, yeah. And we try and tweet. We're not very good at it, but both me and Alan try and tweet when we can. Oh, I've given up. Oh, have you? Are you off it? Uh, yeah, I just couldn't be bothered. I don't know. I just wasn't in the mood. I'm losing my mojo. I was an internet sensation for about a day. <laughs> Oh, did you ever have second thoughts about entering a deep sea sub? No. I uh, know you you yeah, you're quite adamant on this one. No, never. If you're if you're second guessing it or worried you shouldn't be getting in it. That's the rules. Nobody gets in it if you don't want to get in it. Yeah, no one's forcing anyone. No. I can understand people get nervous and I still I wouldn't class it necessarily as being nervous. It's probably more sort of slightly anxious to do with the ceremony of it all. It's not it's not the safety of it in any way, shape, or form. But when you get all tooled up in your in your gear and everything else and you're sat under the air conditioning waiting to get the nod to come out and walk across the deck and get in the sub, it's a kind of like a, a, it's like a waiting game. You've got ten minutes to sort of pace. And it's that, I wouldn't say it's even nervous or even anxiety or whatever it is. It's just kind of like this, you're sort of psyching yourself up a little bit and you're sort of walking around in circles and then someone, you hear on over the radio saying, okay, ready for passengers. And then you walk out and you go in and then you're just doing what you need to do. So I don't think you really have time to think about it. Just get in it and go. It would be, I can't pee for the next 12 hours. That's what would be making me anxious. <laughs> I'm fine unless somebody tells me I can't. Doesn't bother me. There's a secret knack to that though, isn't there? What was it? A cup of tea and a hot shower? Well, the old guys talk about having, you know, you, you, you go for a wee in the hottest shower you can handle and then that'll give you a good 12 hours. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Worth knowing. Yeah. Do you have a favourite area of the world to be in on a boat and why? I don't know. It's kind of all the same. Surely Antarctica. I know you were quite moved by that one. It's one of the few places where there's stuff at the top. Uh, yes and no. No, it's nice. It's nice when you get the opportunity to come in close to the shore and you can see things like you know icebergs and penguins and all that kind of stuff. But certainly out in the open Southern Ocean, it's horrendous. It's an awful place. <laughs> it's a desert. I described it as. It's just. It's just terrifying. It's like if I left this little life pod, I would not survive very long at all. So it's humbling. Yeah. What's weird is that each ocean has a different colour, right? When you're in Antarctica, the water looks black. It looks very, very dark grey. If you're in the Pacific, it has a very, really specific colour of light blue. And in my mind, the Indian Ocean is a bit greener and the Atlantic is even greener, if you like. It's amazing you could rattle that off. That is <laughs> that is an amazing observation. Yeah, I genuinely think it is. Yeah, I think it can tell the difference. And uh, one of the most, I think the most beautiful colour is when you get in this sub in the Pacific and you're on the surface and you just start to descend and you there's a moment around a few tens of metres, maybe 50 metres, 100 metres, something like that. You go very quickly, so you, you lose the light within the first few minutes. But there's a very specific colour of blue, which is very Pacific Ocean, and it's amazing. And the, the water clarity is amazing too. But if you did it in the Atlantic, you get, the visibility is not very good. Uh, so that that one alone would probably be put in the Pacific as a favourite place. Get Dulux onto that. That one, that blue. Yeah. Both walls of my house, that one. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a favourite ship? We've had some some deep bonds. I had some deep bonds, but it's like like Kaharo was a favourite, but now six months ago we went back to see it. I'm like, I don't know how we ever worked on this thing. So 
It's smaller than I remember. You know, the ship I went just now, I've got a lot of, obviously, a lot of history with it now. We've been working on it almost constantly for five years, but... It must dwarf any other ship you've been on, really. Even the ones we felt we spent a lot of time on, like, you've lived on this one for, yeah. you know, like you say, five years. But that makes it a different relationship to some of the other boats where you go on it and you just have great old time. Like, Zona's a great vessel to be on. Yeah. I personally really like the old Zona. The new one's nice and it's bigger and it's got lots of, you know, it's just nicer kitted out. But the old Zona had some real character to it and it was a proper workhorse and the atmosphere was just good, you know, and it says a lot about the atmosphere. And as I say, look, I've said this before, there's some ships you get on and as soon as you set foot in it, you're like, nah, I don't like this. Yeah. I won't name names, but there's some quite famous ships that I just, just don't like the vibe. It's got a bad mojo. And I don't know if everyone else is picking up on that, but like everyone feels that way as well. So it's not a very good trip. Yeah. There's some that are just, I don't know what it is. It's not even the people or the, or the thing. It's just something about, I don't know, can't really put a finger on it. But the, the olds, I've got a lot of time for the olds on it, like that. Mm. Do you get homesick or is there no time? I think you mentally compartmentalize it. So I know a lot of people struggle with stuff like that. And a lot of people spend every spare moment phoning back friends and family and stuff like that. But I'm really bad for this. I tend to just switch it off. Uh, and knowing that I have to check in at home, I'll, I'll make time to go and do it. But then the problem is I find you just don't have much to say. It's like, oh, how's it going? Well, I've done the same thing today. I've done the last 23 days. And, you know... As we get more connected, it's getting kind of difficult because you you really have to be present in that world. You're so busy. There's so much going on. Yeah. And you've got so little time and energy left over. You know, I, I it's lovely to sort of hear those voices, but also it makes me homesick. Yeah. Yeah. Because it reminds me of everything else. Yeah. And you can just, you can just be in the zone and... The more people there were to miss, you know, once I had a, a family of my own, it was a lot harder to go to sea, but I used to, I used to be fine with six weeks, you know, it was just, yeah. I'm going on the adventure and I'll be back when I'm back. But it's a hard thing to explain to someone who's not done it, but it's, it, I, and I, it sounds selfish. It doesn't sound nice because yeah. absolutely people I miss, but I can't find the time for updates and to, to juggle my home life from remote. If you can't switch it off, you'll just become miserable. This is the thing. So over the years, I think I've managed to kind of like switch it on and off when you have to, you know, if something happens at home and you have to sort of be in the zone for that, then you can and so I don't know what, maybe I'm just very robotic and very binary, but just kind of like, right, get into family mode and do whatever you need to do and make the calls you have to make and then back on the ship. I don't I don't sit and dwell on things or mope around and wish you were somewhere else. You're just, you're there now, just do the job, get off. And when you get off, you'll deal with whatever you have to deal with. You know, that's, that's I don't know, it's a superpower, switching off. <laughs> and there's probably a lot of people in the military who get that. Mm. I think that's a similar mentality. What's it like to try and do lab work on a rolling ship? Really irritating. I can't do microscopes. I can't, you're guaranteed to get seasick if you try and use a microscope. Actually, it's not lab work at a noise. Lab work's just a balancing act. It's like spinning plates, right? you just got to make sure everything's tied down, everything's got little holders and all that kind of stuff. The thing that bugs me is typing when it's really going for it. <laughs> I remember saying we did a job off Titanic. We were sitting above Titanic. For, we went out there for like eight days and never got a single dive in because the weather was so bad and it was just rolling all the time. And for some reason, I forget what it is, I had to write something for something and I promised myself I'd do it when I was away. And it's just every word you type there's a typo yeah. because you're, you're you're sort of like being pulled off the keys you're pulled off the keys and you're pulled on the keys and you're back and you spend the whole time just going t-h-e-e -E, delete space <laughs> you know it's just it's just you might as well just start typing with one finger because it's just so irritating and that's when i get to the point i want to take the laptop take it outside and literally throw it into the sea i find <laughs> typing in rough seas to be the most irritating thing i can't hold my my thread together either i, I find out my writing's really bad it's not just using the keyboard it's just stringing sentences together with that sort of external stimulation of constantly holding balance. Yeah. I just, yeah, my, my writing's terrible when I'm at sea. Oh, it's weird. 
you ever get songs stuck in your head specifically at sea? Yeah. I've discussed this. Yeah. And I think it's the rhythm of the vessel. I think the the rocking of the vessel is the same tempo as certain pieces of music. Yeah. And they just get stuck in my head. We experimented on that once where we deliberately picked a song and started playing it quite a lot in a lab to see if you would it would then catch like a virus. And ultimately you'd end up a couple of days later, you'd find somebody whistling it. Did that once on the James Cook. Oh, did it work? It did. It was Octopus's yeah. Garden. Okay, that's a good one. Hmm. How do you mentally prepare for a stint at sea? I think it depends where you are in your career and what your background is. And going back, I would probably struggle more when I came back than going. Because when you're young, free and single, and you're like, yeah, let's just go on a big adventure, and you just go and deal with it. And then you come back and you realize you have nothing. <laughs> you know, you come out there at the arrivals gate, and then there's all these wives and girlfriends, and all like, oh, oh everyone's that. And you just walk straight through the door and into a taxi and go to the pub and find your mates, and you realize that, why am I even doing this? Whereas now it's different because now you've, you've gone home to something, but then the hard bit is leaving in the first place because mm. you don't necessarily want to leave them but you're looking forward to coming back and so i think that that's that's something that shifted when you go from being young free and single knucklehead to someone who's actually got kids yeah that's really valid i find the build-up more stressful just because there's always that stress of getting everything ready getting yeah. them all ready things are inevitably late suppliers inevitably let you down we have never successfully internationally shipped our equipment nope. yeah is that is that record still holding i think so yeah it's never worked out no nah. so it's all it's always stressful and at the moment moment i'm just if i wake up at 3 a.m that that's it i'm up because i'm just running scenarios i'm packing things i'm running internal stress tests on pieces of gear i'm putting together and oh well if it bends that way is that going to break there and da, da, da. so yeah i'm finding this part quite stressful and so i don't want to then be snippy with my family and then when i'm away and missing them my last memories of the like last week and a half spent with them is me being tired and grumpy and stressed about other things and not really spending any time with them. So that's, uh, yeah, that's something I'm trying to balance right now. Oh, if you could give one piece of packing advice to someone going on the first expedition, what would it be? I know who this is. I know who asked this question and she's teeing me up, but do you have any? No. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> the big grand finale question. No, I don't know. I, I've seen people come on, I still regularly see people come on ships with huge bags and loads of stuff. I just don't get it. You pack amazingly light. Your packing's fantastic. There's a washing machine on the ship, right? You don't you don't need to bring a month's clothes. You just bring a week's worth and wash it. It's pretty easy to work out. Uh, my pro tip is when you're going to do the very careful packing of your bag, lay everything out on the floor, take a photo of it, and then pack your bag. So when you inevitably do that, oh, did I pack that thing? You can just zoom in on the photo and you don't have to unpack that bag six or seven times because you keep forgetting things. Huh, there you go. Never thought of that. That is my pro tip. Be better than in inventory. You can just zoom in on it and see see that it's there. And if it's in the picture, it's in the bag. My alternative strategy is just don't take anything with you. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, did I remember that to pack that? What? Oh, that's right. I don't take anything. So it's all good. <laughs> just four black polos. Yep. And some shorts. Yep. <laughs> that concludes this episode of the deep sea podcast there is a link in the show notes for how you can support the show if you want to give us a hand everything from sort of liking and reviewing and things that you can do for free to things like becoming a patron which again continues to blow my mind that that people are just so generous and we've got a nice little community forming now i'm loving seeing the chat of just people interacting and becoming friends through the show uh, a real variety of people with some really cool stories so until we both return from sea, we'll deep see you next time, and we abyss you already. On the ride with the prophets.